Good morning, family. Thanks for joining us again uh, on this Sunday morning. Again, we're continuing to go through this sermon series that we started last week, uh, Why Penn Valley? Uh, we introduced the idea of, again, that, you know, the, the church is the collective called out group of people, right? It's not, a, it's not a building, it's not an institution, it's not an organization, it's not a social club. We, we as individuals are the church because those who have professed their faith in Christ carry within them the spirit of the Holy Lord. And wherever we go, that is where the church goes. So we're going to continue this today. Um, and since the last election, the presidential election, 2020, COVID, uh, I, I think what we have now is a new phrase, or perhaps not necessarily a new phrase, but it's, it's a phrase that has got, I think, pushed to unhealthy proportions. Uh, and that phrase is simply the term misinformation, or some people would say disinformation. Uh, and that's exactly what it sounds like, that information is being presented that is not actually correct, it's not true. Uh, but with things like social media and, and Twitter, uh, you know, it, it just is all over the place now. We have all of this. Now, prior to this election, prior to COVID, this time period, I, I don't think this was really a, a huge problem for society in the sense that, you know, when, when the Internet came out, I think we all understood that the fact that anybody could post anything on the Internet there was going to be information that wasn't correct, right? We just assume that as a society that this is just the way it's going to be. Uh, and as a society, we just kind of embrace the idea that really what you have is kind of a reader beware men mentality, right? That it is my job to try to validate what is actually true and what is actually false, right? That, that, that's left up to the reader to discern how much of that they actually want to believe. Well, now I think what we've gotten to uh, with, again, all of the things available to us in terms of communication and how instant that communication is, you know, now what we have is social media, we have politicians, uh, we have all of these celebrities have now seemed to become the voice of truth and who gets to decide and discern what is actually misinformation, right? And so because of all of this, we've gotten to a place now where those people who are allowing or causing misinformation are now being vilified in society. And we've gotten to a place in society where not only are we vilifying people who misinform the rest of society, but now we want to punish those people and find them or possibly throw them into jail, right? That, that's the level that we've gotten to with this phrase misinformation. And so this, this word uh, is kind of now like one of those words that you use in a conversation uh, to basically shut down a conversation, right? So, so words like sexist, words like bigot or racist, if you simply invoke that word in a conversation, the conversation is now over. And that's what happens when you use the phrase misinformation, right? That if you are in a dialogue with somebody, if you are in a conversation with someone and you don't like what they're saying, 
All you need to do is invoke the phrase misinformation without any sort of actual claim that what you believe is not actually true, and now the conversation is over and the other person is seen as the villain and the bad guy. And the problem with this is even further is any attempt on your part to try to argue the opposite really just seems to make you look more and more like the problem itself. The fact that you continue to argue it, society looks at you and says, you're exactly the problem. You just keep promoting more and more misinformation that's out there. Again, with any sort of real claim that they may or may not be true. But this is the world we live in now, right? We now live in a world of thought police. We now live in a world where apparently someone else has the right or the ability to decide for me what is actually truth and what is not truth. Where did we go wrong? Where did we go wrong in society that we've gotten to that type of place that you and I cannot have a free and open conversation? that we apparently have to guard our words and guard the things that we post on the internet because somebody may look at that and decide that what we have written or said is not true and therefore we should be punished with that. Now I say that a little tongue in cheek because I think we all know where we went wrong. It's because we're sinners, right? Because we are to live in relation with a holy God and instead what we so often attempt to do is go against the very nature of God. We go against the words of scripture, we go against his character, and instead we attempt to live life the way that we want to live life because we're sinners. And so the things that we do, the things that we think, the things that we believe are oftentimes in contradiction to the word of God. And so that's where we're at with society. But as Christians and as the church, we are called to stand against that tide, right? We are called to proclaim the truth of God and proclaim his holy word, his absolute standard of truth. Because that's what the church is always doing, right? We mentioned that last week, that, that we are to be a, a holy, called out group of people. That when the world looks at us, they would see our sovereign Lord and Savior because we stand apart from the rest of the world. And that also goes for what it is that we believe and the truth that we stand upon. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to get there a little bit. I'm actually going to start it in 1 Timothy. Uh, but we're going to be, our main passage will be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And just to give you a little bit of context uh, as to both of these backgrounds. So again, Paul goes on these missionary journeys. He's after his third journey. He's now returning to Jerusalem. He's going to bring some money to the poor people there uh, that he's been collecting from the other Christians and the other churches in the area. And as he goes back to Jerusalem, there are some men from Asia Minor, which we would call modern day Turkey, are seeing Paul. And they're like, there's that guy. He's been the one that's been going against our people and going against the tabernacle and the temple. This, this guy is a criminal. And so they, they whip a crowd into a frenzy and Paul gets arrested, right? And so this is kind of the, the latter half of the book of Acts. And he goes through all of these different processes and then he ends up in Rome because he appeals to Caesar and he says, I want to speak before Caesar. 
And so as he's there, he's under house arrest for about two years, and then eventually he's released. And we're not necessarily told in the scriptures as to why he's released. Uh, many scholars think that probably what just happened was that as he's waiting his trial, all of those individuals that accused Paul of a crime never bothered to make it over to Rome to basically plead their case against Paul. And so pretty much Caesar was like, well, listen, whoever accused you isn't here. I can't keep holding you, so I'm just going to let you go. So at this point, Paul continues his journeys again, and now he's got his protege with him, Timothy. And he takes Timothy to, to the city of Ephesus, and he says, I'm going to leave you here because I want you to set this house in order. I want you to get this church in order, and I'm going to keep doing other ministry elsewhere. So Paul's, Timothy stays in Ephesus, Paul's traveling around, and then he writes him this letter. Because again, he has a desire for Timothy to put the church in order of what the church is supposed to do and supposed to be. And so in 1 Timothy chapter, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, here's what he writes. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how the people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which is true, godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by the angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. So again, he's saying, Timothy, look, I need you to get this church in order. I need you to, to get the house right. And, and, and he gives them this phrase, and this statement here. And he says, look, the, the church is the foundation of truth. And he gives him kind of really this set of six balanced lines. It's actually almost kind of read as a hymn, if you will, when this is actually being said. And he says, look, this is really important. You need to understand this. That first off, we have a living God. God is not dead. God is not aloof to this world. That God did not make this world to just function like some sort of clock or mechanism and then he steps away and the world just continues to run and, and God has wiped his hands clean. He says, Timothy, our God is alive and our God is active and he is present in this world and he can see what is going on and he is involved in the lives of our people. So our God is not dead. And he says, the church, again, is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And we have to understand that when he says this, we're not just saying that the church is built upon the foundation of the gospel, but it is also supported in everything that we do. Right? Greece and Rome had all of these magnificent temples that existed. And they had all of these pillars and all of these ornate and decorated columns that, that, that created the sides of buildings and held the roof up. And he says, look, this truth that I'm giving you right now, Timothy, this is where we lay the foundation of who we are. And not only lay the foundation, but everything else about us is built upon this foundation. Our entire existence is captured in this essence, Timothy. And you know what the reality is? That this is not just a reality of truth for the church, 
But this is a reality of truth for the entire world. All of the world is built upon this foundation. Now, they may not accept that, but that is the way that truth works because it is truth. And so what does he say? He says, Jesus appeared in the body. Jesus is God that has come down in human form, living and walking amongst us. And when it says that he was vindicated, his righteousness was declared because he was a sinless God who walked this world and then took upon our sins and our punishment for you and I because he didn't want to live without us. And before God, he was declared righteous. And before God, we now stand righteous in the blood of Jesus Christ. He is the perfect and final sacrifice for us. And it says that he was seen by the angels, that there is this angelic and heavenly realm that is just constantly looking out and marvels at all of the things that God has done and marvels at the people of God and how God has interacted with all of us. And now the angels, as Christ has been brought back into his kingdom, they're there worshiping and praising the Father where we will also be one day too. And what was Christ then done? He was preached among the nations. That salvation comes through Jesus Christ. And then when he ascended up into his glory, into the heavens, he then turns to his disciples and he turns to the church and he says, now this is your job to continue to preach this message because my name will go out all over the world that salvation is found through me and me alone. So that is the pillar of truth that the church stands upon. That we are sinners saved by the grace and by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I, I, I've printed out and I've put on the Welcome Center if you want a, a little bit more detail about what our statement of faith is. What are those key non-negotiables that this church adheres to that are back on the Welcome Center? And I would encourage you to grab a copy of that. To see what it is that if you're going to attend this church, what are the things that we are essentially saying to you that says, this is what you cannot ever budge upon. There's no gray areas with these statements. This is truth. So that's the book of 1 Timothy. And he lays out and he just gives him a general. Timothy, here's the things that we need to do. So now he's going to write a second letter. And as I said, Timothy's been let free and he's been going around doing ministry. And at this point, Rome has the great fire in 64 AD. And it's the Christians who get blamed for this. And so again, not 100% sure why as to why he's been arrested again, but most likely many Christians of this time are being rounded up as a result of this fire. And now Paul has been arrested. And now it's not just house arrest. But Paul is in the Roman prison, which really is kind of a Roman dungeon. And Paul understands at this point, I'm not getting out of here. There's, there's no saving me at this point. I'm done. And so he writes a second letter to Timothy. And this one's much more personal. And it's much more heartfelt. And he's basically saying to Timothy, he says, Timothy, look, 
I've already told you how the church is supposed to function. But now what I'm doing, Timothy, is I'm giving you the baton of leadership because I'm not going to make it out of here. But I need you to continue the ministry of faith. And here's what I need you to understand. Here's what I need you to do, Timothy. And so he writes the second book of Timothy. And we're going to pick up here in verse chapter 3. Starting in verse 1. He says, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who worm their way into the homes and gain control over weak-willed women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janus and Jambri opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth. Men of depraved minds who are as far as the faith is concerned are rejected. But they will not get very far because in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. So he says again, personal, heartfelt, Timothy, I'm going to die. I'm passing you the leadership. Here's what you need to understand. He says, they're going to, there's going to be some bad times. He says, he says look, he says, he says, mark this. Mark this, Timothy. This is an imperative. This is a command. Exclamation mark, Timothy. Are you listening to what I'm about to tell you? He said, there's going to be some terrible times here in these last days. These last days from Christ until when Christ comes back a second time. I do not know how long that is going to be. But all I know is every day is one day closer to that time. And he says, there are terrible times. And that word terrible is the idea of violent. It's the idea of, of a raging sea or this wild animal. The only other time we actually see that phrase in Scripture is there in Matthew 28, where you have these two demon-possessed men that are living in a cave. And it says that they're like wild animals that are untamed. And that every time people tried to get past the cave, these guys would come out and they wouldn't let people pass. He says, that's what life is going to be like at the end for you, Timothy. This is how bad it's going to be. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Because you need to be ready for this. And whenever we see scripture, again, one of the, a good Bible tool is whenever there's a list, again, usually the first one is often highlighted, tends to be the most important, right? Uh, and so what does he say? He says, Timothy, in these last days, people are going to be lovers of themselves, People aren't going to love God, but they're going to love themselves above everything else. And this is really a foundation for all kinds of depravity, isn't it? Because when we love ourselves, what does that mean? It means that we don't love God and we don't love others. Here's how, here's how one commentator put it. He said, the love of self is the basic sin from which all others flow. 
The moment a man makes his own will the center of life, divine and human relationships are destroyed. Disobedience to God and charity to men become impossible. The essence of Christianity is not the enthronement, but is the obliteration of self. Right? As Christians, we are to deny ourselves just the way that Christ denied himself for our sake. It's not about me, but it's about God and it's about others. And so what do we live in now? We live in a world of pride and boastful arrogance. The world is consumed with the fact that, that we, we post on the internet selfies after selfies that say, look at me, look what I'm doing. And we try to garnish as many YouTube likes and, and TikTok clicks that we can get. We've become a society that is simply obsessed with instant celebrity status, that all I have to do is doll myself up and make myself look pretty and say something the world wants to hear and I snap a picture of it and then I put it out there for everyone to tell me how wonderful I am. That's the world in which we live. We're lovers of self. And then he lists all these other things and he talks about greed. I don't know if you guys heard recently, but there was a, a designer um, that came out with a new trash bag. $1,800 for a designer trash bag. Because apparently $1,800 couldn't go to anything else in this world to help feed and care for widows and orphans and everything else in society. We need to be able to throw our trash out in fashion. You know, last year schools were plagued by a TikTok challenge where kids were encouraged to film themselves going into bathrooms and destroying them. I experienced this at my own school. Thousands and thousands of dollars were spent to replace sinks that were destroyed. Paper towel dispensers were ripped off the walls. Toilets were clogged. Graffiti all over the bathroom. Because it was a challenge to see who could do it better than everyone else. You know, it talks about how we're without self-control how people won't listen to their parents, we're rash, we're conceited. You know, we live in a time period now where there is a blatant disrespect for authority. What we have done is empowered other people to say you have every right to fight against any sort of authority, right? Haven't we seen that with the destruction of police precincts? Men and women who put their lives to protect law enforcement, we've allowed them to run rampant and we've said, well, those people are the ones that are wrong, so let's destroy the very fabric of authority. And now any sort of authority figure is really left to the whim and the mercy of mob rule. That's where we're at in society. And he says, all of these things are done in a way with a form of godliness, right? We, the world takes all of these things of evil and wrong and it disguises them and says, no, 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 this is okay because it's all about personal freedom and your own personal gratification and satisfaction. 
Who am I to stand in the way of someone else's happiness? That's what it does. It, it guises it as if it's some sort of blessing to us and that we should embrace that. And what does God say to us? He says, you must deny that because that is not right. That is not true. And then he says, you know how bad these people are? He says, they worm their way into people's homes. See, that's what we've done now as a society. We've looked at the hurts of people, and instead of seeking to help them, we exploit them. We take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable, and we connive them into believing what we want, not because we actually think it's best for them, but we do it because of our own selfish greed and desires. That if I can get them to believe what I want, then my life is going to be better. And he mentions this guy, Janus and, and John Bray. And he says, look, these, remember these magicians when, when Moses throws down his staff and, and then it turns into a snake and the other guys do it. Remember when he turns water in the blood and then these magicians do it? Well, eventually God keeps performing miracles that these guys are like, I can't do this anymore. And they're proved to be frauds and fakes. And he's just reminding Timothy, he says, look, you got to understand something. Oh, this world is bad. Oh, this world is terrible. It is a raging sea against you. But their folly will be exposed. Their folly will be exposed and they will stand before a holy God one day, Timothy. Just keep that in mind as you go through this world. And so he says, okay, that's the reality, Timothy. Let me, let me encourage you now, because that doesn't sound very pleasant, doesn't it? We're probably thinking like, yeah, Adam, this is what I feel like. And again, direction means it's only getting worse. But he says, let me, let me give some encouragement here. So now we move to verse 10. <clears throat> he says, you, however, know all about my teaching, my doctrine, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, love, endurance, persecution, suffering. What kinds of things that happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, The persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. While evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and you've become convinced of because you know of those from whom you have learned and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He says, Timothy, look, you walked with me. You, you heard the truth come out of my mouth. You saw what I went through, the persecutions, the, the trials, the temptations. Timothy, you saw all of that. And you saw how I endured through that. I've set you a model of what you are to follow. Because again, Timothy, I'm not making it out of here. And if you want to survive this world... You're going to need to know the truth. 
that our salvation, our deliverance, our rescue, our redemption, again, is only found in Jesus Christ. And it comes through his word. Now, how do I know that this, this, this Bible, this, this word is not just some man-made, I mean, wasn't this written by men? How do, how do we know that they just didn't make stuff up? Why can I have confidence in this? Well, first off, he says that it is God-breathed. He literally is imparting his spirit into these men as they write, guiding them into what he wants them to write and say. So it's not just willy-nilly these disciples said, I'm going to write a book, I'm going to write a letter, we're going to call it part of the Bible. No, 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 they are divinely inspired by God to do it. Now again, we look at this and go, yeah, Adam, but that's what the Bible says. What if I don't believe that? So often in history, we look back at historical documents and we accept them from truth, written by a single individual that were written in some cases 500 years later and we accept that in truth. But yet we refuse to accept the Bible as truth as a historical document. Well, we have to remember the Bible was written by over 40 authors with one unifying message that all of these authors continue to proclaim the same truth, written over 2,000 years of history. It's the same central message. So they're not deviating from that. These are men that have been spoken directly by God or spoken directly by Christ or lived in close relation to the disciples. That most of these letters and books were written within a time period of a single individual life. Within 30, 40, 50 years, some of these letters were written from when the actual event happened. But Adam, that's not true. But I'll accept the one that was written a thousand years later by this single individual. If you want a more historical document, you'll never find a more historical one than the Word of God. And I'll tell you what, every time we find a piece of archaeological evidence, it only further supports the evidence for the Bible. We have yet to find historical documents or coins or, or, or inscriptions or artifacts that go, look, the Bible is not true. How come we don't talk about it then? Because the world doesn't want the truth. So we can believe this to be true. If you're going to believe anything in history, this is the most reliable set of documents that we have. So, what does it do for us? Teaching. It tells us what is correct doctrine. It tells us about the nature of man. It tells us about the second coming of Christ. It tells us how to live in a marriage and how to parent our children. That is what teaching is. And it teaches us how to rebuke. That when somebody comes to us and says, this is what I believe to be true, we can come back and say, this is what the Bible says to be true. That's what rebuking is. It's correcting someone's error. And that idea of correcting then is taking that information and guiding them into the proper truth. And then we use it to train. 
to discipline a child. And when I say discipline, I'm not talking about a punishment of a child, but it's about setting godly habits and lifestyles that if you follow God's word, if you follow the Holy Scriptures, he will guide you into how you are supposed to live for a life that will be one of blessing. So that why? That we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The reason why we dive ourselves into the truth, the reason why the church needs to know the truth is because every time some false ideology comes out, we have to be able to identify that as a lie and point people back to Christ. That every time someone is in a situation and says, what am I supposed to do? We go back to the scriptures and say, this is what God is telling you to do. We need to be prepared for every situation. And that's what God's word does for us. So he says, here's the reality. There are terrible times, raging seas. People are going to hate you. Be encouraged, Timothy. I've set you a model. I've given you the truth. The truth will help you through all of life. But now here's the exhortation. Now, Timothy, here's what I need you to do. Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all of your duties of your ministry. Reality encouragement, now here's the exhortation. First off, in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, God who is going to judge the living and the dead, that is who you are going to stand before someday, guys. That is who you are going to give an account to someday. It's not some judge that will be elected and when he decides to retire will be be swept out of office. No, no, no. You are standing before the holy sovereign God and you will give an account of your life and what you did as part of the church. Do you understand who it is that you are being held accountable to? I got you, Paul. This is serious. And he says, what I need you to do is I need you to preach the word, church. I need you to be a herald, an official messenger. It's like the press secretary, right? When the press secretary stands there and says, this is what the president says, they are the official spokesperson. Guys, we are the official spokesperson of God. And when do we have to give a press conference? Well, guess what? We need to be ready all the time. We need to be ready in season and out of season. You need to be ready when you know a conversation is coming and you need to be ready when you don't know that conversation is going to happen. So when you think you're off duty, guess what? You're never off duty because the word of God never stops. 
And he says, you got to understand, you're in a time where people don't want to put up with sound doctrine. All they want is to have their ears tickled by what they want to hear. You are going to proclaim a message that people don't want to hear, and you need to be ready for that. We live in a society where absolute truth no longer exists. There is no longer an absolute sense of right or wrong, but everything has become relative. Whatever you believe is fine for you, and whatever I believe is fine for me, but you dare not tell me what I should believe. Again, the irony of that, because what is truth? Truth is that which is correct and right. So if you're going to tell me you and I can have two different types of truth, isn't that going against its very essence of what truth is? But why does society do that? Because society does not want to feel the conviction of the immorality of their sins. But the reality is, guys, you can't change the truth, right? Instead, the truth should change us, should it not? So truth is not defined by a politician. Truth is not defined by a blogger behind a computer screen. Truth is defined by the absolute and sovereign Lord. And he gave it to us in his scripture. And so God is calling us as the church to be the pillar of truth. He's saying to each and every one of you individually, because you are the truth, you are the pillar of that truth. And you need to be ready. And so this church, Penn Valley Church, is going to stand on the infallible word of God. We do not have a right to change this, and we do not have a right to pick and choose what we like out of it. You will either embrace all of this scripture or you will not embrace any of it. But to embrace part of it is not a follower of Christ. So we live in a time period where people who can silence the lips of Christians are considered heroes. Because they don't want to hear our message. See, again, the world looks at us and says, all you do is preach hate. Why do you hate on everyone? Your church is full of hate mongers, right? Remember those words, that shut down conversation? That is what the world deems us as. That we are the bigots and we are the intolerant group of people. But what they don't understand is that when we preach a message of sin, it is always followed by the love of Jesus Christ and the repentance towards him. Because the truth that we preach is not one of condemnation, but it is one of eternal salvation. It is your rejection of that truth that is your condemnation. We don't preach death. What do we preach? We preach life. That is what the world gets wrong. But again, the world doesn't want to hear it. Because that means it has to expose their souls to their own sinfulness. To be told they're wrong, they are immoral, and compared against the holy God, they are condemned to die in the perils of hell. Adam, how dare you say that? 
I say it because it's in the scriptures. But that is not what God wants, and nor is that what we want. And so what do we do as a church? We will preach the truth, because the truth is what is going to save people. So here's where I challenge you guys. Just like Paul challenged Timothy. You've got to preach this. You are a herald. You are the official messenger. Do you know your truth? Do you know your scriptures? Because here's the reality. If you show up on Sunday and you think that what you hear from me in a pulpit is good enough for the rest of the week, you are sadly mistaken. I want to challenge each and every one of you to make reading God's word a daily part of your life. Adam, you don't understand. I'm a busy man. I got to get up early. I work 10 hours. I'm exhausted when I come home. I understand that. But if we are not in God's word, how do we know when there's a lie before us? And you're right. Some of you work extremely hard and you have a lot going on. So let me challenge you with this then. When you're driving, play the word of God and listen to it. It doesn't work for me, Adam. Pick a verse and begin to commit it to your memory. Memorize it every day. Heck, pick one verse a week and just continue to pray and meditate over that. Whatever you need to do to be in God's word, I want to challenge this church to do that. Because I should not be the only one that knows right from wrong. Because if you put all of your faith in me, that is a problem. Because I am just as fallible as any man and can get anything wrong. And so just as I preach the word, you have to hold me accountable to the scripture as well. But the only way you do that is if you know your truth. So we will preach the truth because the truth is what is going to save people. And what is that truth again? That we are sinners saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. That God came down as a baby and he, is, he ascended to the heavens. That he, he laid in the grave for three days and rose again to prove that he was God. And how do we do it? We do it with the greatest love ever possible for people. Because Christ loved on us in our state of sinfulness. And so when the world hates us, we're going to love that world right back. Let's pray. Lord, this, um, it is easy. It, it, it is easy to say we should preach truth. It's another thing when we are confronted by those who want to yell at us. It becomes harder when lives are on the line, Father, when the threat of jail or imprisonment or loss of status is looking us in the face and we're called to preach your truth. But Lord, I pray that's what we would do. Because why? Because that is what you've called this church to do, to be that pillar. We were built on that foundation and we stand on that foundation. Lord, may, may we be a group of people that as we dive into your word, it's not one of difficulty. It's, it's not one of 
feeling like it's one more task, but instead, Lord, that as we dive into your word, it is life-giving for us. That we crave the very essence of what you have to say to us and how to live. Lord, that we get to a place where we couldn't imagine not being in your word on a day-to-day basis. Open our eyes. Spirit, guide us into what is true and what is a lie. And more importantly, guide us to the people who need to hear that truth. That we may love on them with the greatest love we've ever seen, which is what you did at the cross. Amen.